the book of Romans, chapter 8. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together. Coming now to chapter 8. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. You just wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Romans chapter 8, and we pick up the context a little bit in uh, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We won't get to that verse today, so... Uh, relax uh, if you think, oh no, he's going to go there too. Um, but here's where we will focus this morning. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also, speaking of Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And then two more verses that we won't get to this morning. There's so much we won't get to. For we... Uh, we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Let's pray together. Father, we never tire of telling you each time we open up this book uh, what a privilege we consider it uh, to be. As we've lived another week in this world and listened to all of the philosophies and theorizing and talking and, and uh, surmisings of man, uh, and, and then, Lord, having lived for many of us long years, a victim of our own uh, thoughts and our own ideas about truth, and then to come to something that is rock-solid, unshakable, and that produces uniformly in every human life a quality of life that only truth can produce. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to examine your truth this morning with the knowledge that heaven and earth is going to pass away and all of its words as well, but your word will never pass away. Speak to us from your word this morning, we pray, and we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think that it's interesting uh, to notice at this point, as in Paul's instruction to us, as he's dealing with in chapters 6 through 8, our sanctification as Christians, God's call upon uh, our lives to live lives that are holy, that he, in the midst of addressing a subject like that, he now raises the subject of suffering. And he introduces the uh, subject of suffering at the end of verse 17, and now uh, he enlarges on it in uh, verses 18 to 25. And I ask myself, why uh, introduce that subject at this particular point? I mean, it seems like such an odd place to introduce the subject. I mean, here we are in verse 17, and we're talking about being heirs and uh, joint heirs with Christ. and. Uh, and being reminded of that and all of the hallelujah that is in our heart related to what's there in verse 17. But I think Paul raises the subject of, of suffering because he wants us to know uh, that living holy lives, living sanctified lives, not only does not guarantee us a life that's free of suffering, but in fact there is a sense in which living a holy life will introduce a level of suffering into our lives that only Christians uh, will experience this side of, of heaven, so, a suffering that we face uniquely in this world and that a non-Christian will never face. When we talk about suffering, it's important to uh, define it. Uh, one dic dictionary defines it as the state 
of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. And that definition was as good as any that, that I could find. The Greek word that is used here for suffering, it means to suffer. Uh, it means to be in pain. And this definition, uh, in terms of, of the Greek word that Paul uses here, uh, this goes even beyond the dic dictionary definition in that the word that Paul uses for suffering here, it speaks of uh, not a mild suffering, not a moderate suffering, but a deep suffering, a suffering that produces pain, real pain, not pain that we think of as pain, but it's really just a discomfort but a suffering that produces real pain within our lives, whether it might be physical or it might be mental or it might be emotional or it might be spiritual. Uh, famously, uh, Nietzsche, he, the famous G German philosopher, he wrote on the subject of, of suffering. He said, to live is to suffer. And then he went on to say, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering, uh, which he, uh, rejecting God, failed to uh, accomplish uh, in an adequate measure for his own life and for any adherent to, to his philosophy. Uh, then uh, this, uh, the famous Russian novelist uh, Dostoevsky, I have trouble with his name, uh, he said much the same thing in a uh, generation earlier in his novel The Brothers Karmasov. And uh, he said, suffering is life. I, I'm reading the Brothers Karmasov uh, at, at this current time. It's a thousand pages. Uh, the Russians, they used to write books that would take you an entire long Russian winter uh, to get through. And with a, a depth and a meatiness that you might take a page or two at a time and, and try and understand what's going on. And I always wanted to read one of his books at one point in time in my life. And it was interesting as I'm nearing the final stretch of the book to find this quote uttered by one of the characters, Suffering is Life. And I had a best friend in high school. His name was Carl Gunderstrup. And, uh, and uh, he was hardly a philosopher. He was hardly an author. Uh, but uh, he was prone to encapsulate life this way. He said, life is hard, and then you die. Well, that's a little melancholy for a high school-age uh, student. But uh, he didn't say it often, but he said it often enough and in just the right context that uh, I never forgot it. And all these years later now, I can, I can hardly find any fault uh, in, in the comment. More on that later. The Bible's explanation for the introduction of suffering into human history and into the human condition is found in the first three chapters of the very book of the Bible itself, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And there in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, you have the record of the creation of man, the fall of man, and the redemption of, of mankind. And at the end of chapter 1, following the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, we are told that then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. And so the evening and morning were the sixth day. In chapter 3, it then provides us with a record of the sin of Adam and Eve in that literal and physical uh, Garden of Eden in partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in violation of the commandment uh, of God, and then in doing so, they introduce sin not only into their own lives, but into the entire world. And God made, a broader, uh, made the broader uh, consequences of Adam and Eve's sin very, very clear to Adam following his sin. When he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Now, in verses 19 to 23 in, here in Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of the universal suffering that the sin of Adam and Eve has brought into existence. And he talks about the suffering that that sin has brought into creation itself in verses 19 to 22. 
And then second, what that, the suffering that that sin has brought into all of mankind, whether a Jew or Gentile, whether saved or unsaved. And then finally in verse 23, uh, all that, that uh, the suffering that that sin has brought specifically and uniquely into our lives as Christians. Now, concerning the universality of, of sin uh, and, and looking at it, first of all, in terms of, of creation in verses 19 to 22, Paul tells us in verse 22, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What's he talking about? Uh, some of the examples of what uh, the creation now groans under or the creation now suffers under, uh, the, sins, the sin's impact upon, upon nature. Uh, God spoke of it in Genesis chapter 3, the thorns and the thistles, but then we would look beyond that and all of that includes what we know today as earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts, uh, volcanic eruptions, as we've seen uh, one of those going on dramatically in the Hawaiian Islands and then uh, dramatically elsewhere in the world, Guatemala, with a great loss of life. And none of these things existed prior to the fall of Adam and Eve. They were never intended by God to be a part of this world, to be a part of His creation, to be a part uh, of, of, our, uh, of human history. And then you just stop and think about the suffering. Uh, just stop and think about the suffering that these things introduce into the world every single year. I mean, the indescribable suffering that follows a flood that follows a great earthquake, that follows a hurricane. Not only is the earth scarred as a result of these things, but then there is the destruction, the devastation that people have to deal with in putting their lives back together uh, after these uh, catastrophes. And so often we watch it on the news, on the television, and you see some great hurricane that has come through, devastated an entire nation or entire islands, and you look at the devastation and you wonder, how long will it take for things to ever go back uh, to normal as, as a result of that, that hurricane? Or you wonder if it ever will. Or you travel, as some do, with Samaritan's Purse or some other uh, aid organization that goes then to the side of these uh, devastations. And then you don't see it through a television uh, set. You see it firsthand. You see it uh, with your own eyes. And you see the devastation of the suffering uh, firsthand in the face of every person you meet and you try to help. And these things introduce suffering and suffering and su more suffering in all directions. And so creation suffers, and with it, man suffers as well. And almost always, when these things occur, uh, someone will rise up and blame it all on God, or they'll use it as an evidence that, uh, attempt to use it as an evidence that God uh, doesn't exist. And they'll pose its, uh, their protest in, in this way, uh, typically, if God is real, then how could He allow these things to happen? Uh, not realizing, uh, not even uh, taking the time to be familiar enough with the Bible to read and understand the first three chapters of the Bible. Not realizing that all of this is not, uh, what, uh, not God who initiated this world of suffering, but man. When God finished His creation, His intention for the world and for the universe, uh, again, we are told, then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. This is why it's uh, unfair. It's still uh, less and less so, but it's still uh, popular in certain insurance policies for these kind of catastrophes in life and in creation to be uh, regarded or listed under uh, acts of God. And, uh, but the fact of the matter is they're nothing of the sort. It'd be a lot better to refer them to, uh, to them as, the, as consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve. But that's a little more theological that the world wants to face on these things. But the passage, this passage does provide us, I think, with tremendous insight 
and important and necessary insight into the origin of suffering, its pervasiveness in, in, in all of creation and also in mankind, as well as how God will one day bring an end to all of it for those who've trusted in His Son for salvation. Now, throughout the ages, you have uh, people have wrestled with the existence of God uh, in, in the light of the suffering and pain in the world. And so, uh, some will conclude that suffering in the world has to mean one of two things concerning God, that it must reveal Him either to be loving uh, but not all-powerful, or it reveals Him to be all-powerful but not loving. Uh, and they surmise that the, the continued existence of suffering proves that a all-loving, all-powerful God, as He's described in the Bible, that that simply cannot uh, be true in the light of the circumstances of the world. Because if He was truly loving, He'd bring an immediate end to all of the suffering. And because He doesn't, it must mean that He's not powerful enough to do it. Or if he's all-powerful, but he fails to bring an immediate end to suffering, then it must mean that he is not uh, loving. The problem with that, and it's an argument that's uh, very common, many of you are familiar with it, but the problem with that is it's a false dichotomy, uh, as if there's no other alternative than those two choices. The Bible teaches that God is both loving and all-powerful, and that one day, he will bring an end to all of this fallen uh, mess that is around us, that it will one day give way to a new heaven and a new earth that's completely untainted by sin, and as a result will be completely untainted by suffering. In other words, uh, God has something uh, bigger and better in the works. Well, I've given this explanation to a large number of people in the course of my Christian life, and uh, usually it's met with scorn. And uh, someone will say to me, as they recently did, well, one day, yes, one day God will do that. Someday He'll do that. How convenient uh, for God. Uh, to which I will usually reply, listen, you ask for the Bible's answer to your question, and there it is. And then sometimes I'll uh, venture to say, but I always think, that if the Bible's explanation is unsatisfactory to them, and that uh, suffering will one day be done away with as, uh, as opposed to being done away with today, and because that is not how they would handle suffering and do things, I uh, might ask them to consider, number one, that there might be more in play in all of this in terms of the grand scheme of things than we realize, uh, that while suffering must be brought to an end, it must be brought to an end the right way. And then the second thing to consider is that there might be more to actually being God than they realize as opposed to uh, just kind of popping off uh, from the nosebleed section of the stadium uh, or the arena or uh, being an armchair quarterback who knows nothing about what it is to actually be a quarterback, uh, but from the comfort of their chair and the comfort of their living room and their flat-screen TV, they know all about uh, what Joe Montana should have done or uh, Carl Wentz or whoever the quarter, the quarter might, uh, back might, uh, might be. Uh, Garoppolo, that's a little more close to home, and Carr, that'll make some of you happy. It does me uh, that I remembered their names. I think about man. I'm not impressed with man. I love mankind. I'm impressed to a degree, but I'm never impressed when a man or a woman ventures into the God territory and decides that on any particular subject is, and for me, someone who's familiar with the Bible, that they know more than God on any subject. And the reason I'm not impressed is I'm not impressed with myself. And I mean, you take a human being, the best of human beings. We cannot keep ourselves from catching cold. We cannot bring an end to our cold. Uh, life, as I've said before, ultimately comes to a place where you put a bright lamp over your sock drawer, over your dress of drawer, uh, chest of drawers, in order to attempt to, uh, to even have a 50-50 chance 
of not wearing a black sock and a blue sock out the door when you go. And to think about in terms of a younger kind of illustration, here you have uh, people that want to venture into what God should do and shouldn't do and what He should be and shouldn't be, and they can't even conquer a single video game that is in existence today, uh, but thinks nothing of venturing into with such a limited perspective uh, who God should be and what He should do and how He should do it and when uh, He should do it. You notice what Paul says about the impact of, uh, of the sin uh, and the fall upon creation. In verse 20, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in, in hope. And so he tells us that creation was subjected to futility. And what Paul is saying, in other words, is that creation today is very, very far away from what God originally created to be. It is very, very far away from the ideal that He intended, that it was subjected to futility at a certain point in time. Something happened to produce this suffering mess that we live in the middle of, but up to that point, this creation had been free from decay, and it had been free from corruption. He says that this happened not willingly. In other words, creation played no part in its own fall. Uh, it, it is in this condition as a result of another sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, and God's judgment uh, coming uh, not only upon Adam and Eve, but God's judgment then coming upon what He gave them authority over, gave them federal headship over, and that was uh, over the earth. But you notice, too, in that verse that God subjected it in hope. In other words, God promises that this fallen world, this suffering-filled world that we live in, it's not going to remain in the condition that it's in now permanently, but one day it's going to return to some semblance of its pre-fall condition in the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, as we sometimes refer to it, and then ultimately it will give way to a new heavens and to a new earth. You notice in verse 21, Paul declares, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And the bondage that he talks about here, it speaks of the fact that the creation in the curse that it is under it is unable to free itself uh, from, uh, from the, the deliverance, uh, deliver itself from the bondage. That deliverance has to come from another. When he uses the term corruption there in verse 21 as well, uh, the, the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. That word, uh, I like it better in the, the King James Version where they uh, uh, translate it decay. And the, it speaks to the fact that the world that we're living in is decaying, uh, and it is. You have the second law of thermodynamics that's in full play. The, the universe is not winding up. It is winding down. And by virtue of that law, an indisputable law, given enough time, it will wind all of the way uh, down. And, the, and it is the corruption of the entire thing. And you look at the planet itself, I mean, there's not a pristine section uh, uh, left upon the planet. Uh, the, the earth itself, it ravages itself with natural disasters. And then you have man's greed that comes in and, and his sinfulness and further ravages uh, the world and its land and its air and its seas and its rivers and its natural resources. And even as Paul declared 2,000 years ago, the world and creation, it's not evolving, but it's devolving. It's not moving toward perfection, as many would have us to believe, but it is moving from perfection. You notice in verse 22, Paul describes the whole creation as being marked by uh, the groans and labors associated uh, with birth pangs. He describes the creation's very vivid language. Uh, I've never had a baby, but I've been in the room twice with someone who I love uh, dearly. Uh, that's something you want to, you, birth banks, you want to see that come to an end. 
Uh, but the imagery here is powerful as Paul uses it. He, he describes the creation as being in, uh, in constant labor. He compares it to a woman in labor. The entire universe is in travail as if it were giving birth. Uh, and that's the way we're to look at the world that we live in. As beautiful as the world is, even yet, in its fallenness. I mean, you think about uh, how awesome it is to see it in its beauty. You look at the mountains, you look at the seas, you look at the seashores, and you look at the valleys. I marvel at the color and the variety of the plants and, and the fertileness of the soil, as we know so well in the Central Valley. And, uh, and as, we, as beautiful as it is, it's still a far cry from what it once was and what God intended it to be. You imagine, imagine a woman, uh, a woman being subjected to perpetual childbirth. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, a delivery that never ends. And, and uh, how she would long to return to the life uh, that she once knew before all of this labor and all of this pain. And Paul is saying, so it is with nature. Nature itself currently groans and it longs for what it once was before the fall of man. And, then, and yet the, the mention of birth in verse 22 also introduces hope that one day a birth will occur, and the, create, the current groaning and labor is going to be brought to an end. And he describes this and addresses this in two places in the passage. Notice first in verse 19, he declares that the creation uh, waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. In other words, for the day when Jesus returns to this world, at his second coming with all of his saints, and then to establish uh, the kingdom age. And at that point, things will not only change, uh, as we have said, for mankind, but it will also change uh, for the animal kingdom. It will also change for the creation itself. You will have the lion laying down with the lamb. Uh, and, and not being in any danger. As the old joke goes, today you can have a, lion lay, uh, a lamb laying down with a lion, uh, but it'll be inside the lion. It'll be entirely different uh, in, in the, the, kingdom, the kingdom age, and the curse upon creation will be uh, moved back. I think J.B. Phillips' uh, translation captures the anticipation that creation, we long for that day as Christians, but so often we don't realize how much creation itself is longing uh, for that day. And he captures it when he translates verse 19 this way, the whole creation is on tiptoes to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. And then I want you to notice in verse 21 that ultimately and finally uh, there, as it declares that creation will be delivered, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, as much as any Christian longs for a new body uh, in heaven and, uh, and to ultimately to be freed from the corruption and the suffering of this world, that so too the world itself, the creation itself, longs for a new creation as well. And again, this will happen at the end of uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ when this entire uh, corrupted creation will give way to a new heavens and a, a new earth, as Peter writes in his second epistle. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, this groaning and this laboring in creation 
It includes not just the earth, the physical earth, and, and the physical universe all around us, from the trees to the soil to the animals to the weather, but it also includes people, uh, whether saved or unsaved, because we are a part of that creation. And not only uh, do we have to endure and navigate as people in this world all of the natural catastrophes of life associated with all of the fallenness of, of creation, as if that wasn't enough. But on top of all of that, as human beings, as descendants of Adam and Eve, every one of us has to deal with a completely additional layer of suffering, death, for instance, and all that's associated with that. Think about how much suffering has occurred in human history by virtue of the existence of death alone. You think about the, the contemplation of our own death to come, the weight of the fear of death that hangs upon uh, every person until they come to know Christ, and then the suffering that we experience, not only related to our own death, if the Lord should tarry, or contemplating our own death, but the suffering that we experience associated with death because of the death of a loved one within our lives, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a loved one, a friend of some kind. Stop and think for a moment related to your own life and then compound it by not only the seven plus billion that live in the world today, but have lived all through history and think about just on the, to, with the introduction of suffering or, or death into human history, the sheer amount of suffering that has been introduced into our lives and in, into the life of every single uh, human being. And the suffering and the heartbreak that just literally pounds upon the entire population of the world, not intermittently, but all day, every day, around the world. And then there's the groaning and the sorrow associated with aging, uh, the gradual failure of the body, and groaning is the word for it. Ultimately, all of us, if we have the blessing of growing old enough, every movement comes with a sound, and that sound ends up distilling very much into a groan uh, the longer we go. But you think about the sorrow that happens with, with aging so often and having to address it. Then there's the sorrow uh, associated with sickness and disease. And you stop and you think about the groaning and the laboring that goes on all around this city, all around this nation and this world on the basis of people dealing with their diseases, dealing with their sicknesses, uh, and, and uh, 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 addressing uh, them or uh, coming to discover that they have a disease. I go to Stanford Medical Center for the uh, dealing with my leukemia, and I walk into an entire hospital that's set up for oncology, and it's every kind of human being you can imagine in that hospital that I walk past and talk with, and here is a whole world that is unseen by much of the rest of the world, and yet the groaning that is going on there, the suffering that is going on in each life, each life would be a book on its own, and yet here they are multitude, uh, multiplied hundreds in just one place. Do you think about the groaning and the suffering associated with cancer, with heart disease, with chronic pain issues that go on all around the world, and the weight of it that is upon people's lives? And then there's the suffering that comes with the cursing of the ground, of the thorns and the thistles. And you think about how many people in the world today, all day, every day, and we don't know anything other than it because we've been born into a fallen world and it's all we've ever known. But, to, but it didn't always exist that men and women had to earn their living and, and uh, every day engage in absolutely backbreaking work so often in order to try and earn money to put food on the table each and every day, and none of that, labor, uh, 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 that kind of labor existed before the fall. And it brings suffering and hardship. 
And then there's the sin and bondage to sin, the suffering that that brings, the sin that Adam and Eve introduced into human history. And you stop and think about what percentage of the world's population today and what percentage even within this room or within the city in which we live has been brought in to bondage to sin. And they wake up every single day or they wake up in the middle of the night and the very first thought that comes to their mind is that they hate what they do. They know what they're doing is destroying them. They hate themselves for what their bondage to sin has turned them into. And the weight of that is everywhere in the human condition. And even if a person is not in the bondage of sin, they still have to, on a daily basis, use enormous physical resources and emotional and mental and spiritual resources in order to resist the pull of that uh, upon our lives. And then there is the weight and the suffering and the groaning that comes with the guilt and the shame and regret and the weight of all of that and the groaning and the suffering that comes with that to look back upon seasons in our life or events in our life and to say, I'd give my right arm to be able to uh, have that conversation turn a different way. I'd give my right arm to have that five minutes back and to redo it or whatever it might be. And then there is the existence of every kind of sin that exists in the human condition. And you think about how much sorrow will be birthed into human lives today and birthed into the world today uh, uh, due to uh, sins that are being committed, murder, sexual assaults, not only the person committing the crime, but once this crime is committed, the sorrow and the devastation that it brings to an individual life, and not only to them, but into their entire family and far beyond it. Violent crimes like aggravated assault and burglaries and robberies and auto theft and drunk drivers. And you think about the sorrow that the drug cartels uh, bring to the world and the drug trafficking brings and the gangs and the extortion and the fraud and the financial scams. And to live in a world like this, it puts a lot of weight upon a person. And I think that very often we aren't even aware of the toll that that fall takes upon us each and every day, physically and emotionally and mentally, until we come to a passage like this that makes us stop and to think about it. And then beyond all of that, there are the wars and, and, uh, between nations and civil wars uh, that go on uh, within nations, all of the suffering that that brings into the human condition. And we could go on and speak about so many other things. We could speak about how our hearts have been broken and how frequently they've been broken and are being broken. Isn't it interesting when I was growing up and you listened to the music that was being, uh, you know, written and played, top 40, top 30, all of that, and half of them are love songs, and the other half of them are heartbreak songs. When the love goes bad and what do you do? And I mean, they're equal expressions within our life. Nobody loves it and, and doesn't experience heartbreak in the course uh, of life. And all of it is a result of the fall. All of it, uh, the consequences, part of the sorrow and the grief and the groaning that we carry in life. And no one, no one escapes any of these things, uh, not Christian or, or non-Christian. Uh, just the sheer uh, amount of weight that every single human being in this world endures and is carrying because of the fall of Adam and Eve. But it's even worse for Christians. Uh, you say, I don't know if I can take any more. Uh, but it is. And we share in and we groan over every single thing that I've already talked about that I've mentioned in terms of the suffering that comes with, the, uh, with living in the midst of a fallen creation, and, and we deal with and endure all of the same things that every other member of, of humanity experiences as well. But in verse 23, Paul speaks of a groaning that we experience uniquely as Christians, 
solely for being Christians. And it's because we have, he tells us, we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We are uh, the only ones in this world who eagerly wait for an adoption, for the redemption of the body. And this speaks of our entrance into heaven and one day receiving a new body that's been made for that heaven and that bears none of the consequences uh, of the fall. And Paul wrote of this body, he said, and of this event, for our citizen, Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the uh, Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he wrote, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this body we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And we groan, not just because of what we are now, but we groan uniquely as Christians, because we know what is coming. We know what our future portion will be, but it has not yet come. Again, Paul introduces this entire section on suffering in verse 17 by reminding us that if we suffer with Jesus, we will also be glorified with Him. And when he uses that phrase in verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, what he's talking about here and the suffering that we face as Christians, he's talking about the unique suffering and the unique persecution that we face as Christians for his sake, uh, for the sole reason uh, of desiring to live faithfully uh, for him, for living like him in this fallen world and the persecution that comes with it. And all of it is very, very real, and it exists in every part of the world that we live in. And the fact that Christians are persecuted for simply desiring to obey Jesus and to live a life like Him, it's a further… all of that is a further source of sorrow that we bear that the world does not. And the fact that we would be persecuted, not for doing wrong but for doing right, and not for advocating a lie, but for advocating the truth. All, the fact that Christians are persecuted in this world is a further evidence of the fall, that something is very wrong with this world, and that it is very upside down in terms of, of uh, and everything is turned upon uh, its head. And the Bible teaches that we're the body of Christ. And since the world doesn't have him physically to persecute any longer following his ascension, they attack us. We must never expect the world to treat Jesus in us any differently than it treated Jesus 2,000 years ago. And it's a badge of honor, really. It's an admission when we're persecuted. And the way that Christians are persecuted strongly all around the world those who study these things say persecution has never in human history uh, risen to the heights in terms of loss of life and, and injury and so forth towards Christians, displacement of Christians, as is happening right now in human history. And all of it is an admission that they see Him within us. But as much as it's glorious to bear the sufferings that, that come our way for being a Christian, it does add to our groaning and the realization that this world is not our home, but we are very, very far from home. And so again, as Christians, we live with an additional groaning and suffering in this world that others do not. And I think it's good every once in a while as a Christian to stop and to consider the sheer uh, amount of suffering and groaning that can be our portion over a lifetime. Uh, but only in order to then remember that one day it will all give way to an indescribable glory, and then to enter into that glory with an appreciation for it that we might not otherwise possess 
without having gone through the suffering that we face here. Again, John described it this way, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, Revelation 21, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Imagine being in a scene one day, in an environment one day, the environment of heaven as Christians, to be in an environment never to experience fear again, never to know that emotion, never to know the sweat of that, never to know the panic of that, to never again worry for all of eternity to never experience those emotions, never to be tempted again, never to sin again, never to feel guilt again, or to feel shame again, or to feel regret again, never to experience sickness again, never to experience disease again or the failure of the body. And every iota of the consequences of that catastrophic fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden, one day, every bit of it, as I've described it to you this morning and could spend the whole morning describing it, every single bit of that one day will be lifted off of us. And I can't even imagine what that will feel like. But I think that very often we can think as Christians of heaven as something, uh, as a, a version that, that uh, when we get there, we're going to, uh, we ourselves when we enter into heaven, that we're still going to be some version of uh, a, a still messed up from the fall of us that is going to be entering into the perfection uh, of heaven and that heaven will be glorious because of what heaven is and not because what we've become as a result of our, our salvation. But it's not going to be that way at all. We will enter into the perfection of heaven, and we will enter into it with a perfection that only the blood of Christ can purchase for us. We will be completely changed as well. And every bit of the consequences of the fall is going to be lifted off of us is going to allow us to enter into a, a purity of peace and of joy that we cannot imagine. We can't imagine it. All we've known is fallenness. And to think, to have one of these things lifted from our life, think about what it would be like to have just the temptation taken away from our lives this side of heaven. And the quality of life that we would experience from the removal of but one consequence of the fall, and then think about what it will be like to have all of them removed from our lives. I say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, and He is coming quickly. And so this morning, to consider just the sheer weight of fallenness that is upon us, and to just glory in the fact that one day it's going to be lifted off of us. And you say, well, what do we do in the meantime between now and then? Ah, those are the verses that I skipped, and that will constitute part two of the sermon uh, next time. Life is hard, <clears throat> and then you die. But when we die, it either becomes instantly and miraculously and indescribably better, or it becomes instantly and indescribably worse, based solely upon what I do with God's gift of salvation provided to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian here uh, this morning, 
What Jesus longs to declare to you today and the invitation he gives to you is come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And now we realize when he makes that invitation, it's not to a select few of mankind, but that's an invitation to all of mankind because all of us labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up here immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you've been created for and without which nothing in life will make any sense at all. Today's the day of salvation. Come forward and receive your Savior, God's gift of a Savior to you uh, today. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank you this morning for how, in an odd way, being made aware of what we carry all day, every day in life and deal with, and the sheer amount of resources that we spend physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually, Lord, in dealing with the consequences of the fall of an Adam and Eve in that, in that ancient garden of Eden. And how, Lord, it, in all of it, it makes us realize that we're not crazy, we're not odd. All of this adds up. This is, this is, it, this is what makes sense related to life. But then to realize, Lord, and to appreciate in a way that we never otherwise would without knowing these things, how glorious heaven will be and how glorious that day will be when one day all of this is in our past, never to be experienced on any level ever again. We thank you for our Savior today. We thank you for the greatness of his victory, the thoroughness and the power of his salvation and what it means to us today, Lord, and then what it will express, how it will express our, itself in the eternity to come. And Lord, we don't want to close here today without saying thank you again for your word and for the revelation of your word, to say thank you, Lord, in the midst of the messiness of this world for your faithfulness and for your firm grip upon us and how incident of suffering by incident of suffering and groaning and pain as it has entered our lives as Christians that you have brought a greater power and a greater comfort to bear upon each of those losses and each of those situations and we thank you for that and we bless you for it and we do so in Jesus name Amen